I was thinking this week uh, about uh, about 10 or 11 years ago when I met my wife for the first time. And um, I was thinking about this uh, because we're getting her, her rings working wedding ring and her engagement ring. And I was thinking back to that season when I decided that I wanted to marry my wife. Um, And uh, what you need to know is that there was a mixture in my heart at that time of attraction and fear. Um, I I was attracted to her, but I was also afraid of her. Um, she, uh, She carried a badge she told people that her job was to put people in jail for a living. Um, we played basketball one time together, and I learned why she was called the enforcer while she was in college. Um, I had the bruise to prove it. Um, and so I was, I was nervous. I was scared, and I just was, I was wrestling through all of this. And I finally came to the point where I realized that I wanted to marry her. Uh, but I was working for a church, was working part-time. I knew I didn't have the money to afford a, a nice ring. And so I got a call one day from a friend of mine and said, hey, will you come out and proctor this SAT test? Um, and so I said, yeah, sure. Nothing going on on Saturday morning. So I went and I did it. And she said, okay, the check will be coming in two weeks. I said, well, how much am I going to get paid for that? She goes, a hundred bucks. I go, really? A hundred bucks for a Saturday morning? That's a pretty good deal. I said, do you have any more of these to do? She's like, yeah, we've got one next weekend. And so I started proctoring tests. I did the SAT, the ACT, the ASE, that's the mechanic certification test. I did the, the ethics portion of the bar exam for lawyers. And, and after about three or four months, I had saved up enough money to buy a ring for my wife. So I called a friend of mine who used to be a wholesale jeweler. She helped me get a great deal. And so, um, and so I picked up the ring one day. And, and you say sometimes when you get paid a lot of money that the money is burning a hole in your pocket. Well, if you've ever picked up an engagement ring, that thing burns a hole in your pocket. You have to use it. I wasn't going to propose for like three weeks. I said, no, I got to propose sooner. And so I came up with a plan to surprise my wife. I was going to propose on her lunch break on a Friday afternoon, which I know it doesn't sound super romantic, but I had to surprise her. And so uh, I set up this kind of picnic thing and, uh, and then things started going wrong. She started having appointments put on her calendar that Friday. So the time we had shrunk. I got caught in traffic and I was slowing down. She's like, it's okay. We can just have dinner. I'm like, no, we have to have lunch. And so, um, and so then I was getting closer and she goes, we can just have lunch in my office. I said, I'm not proposing in your office, you know? And so like, no, we have to go to the park. And she's like, what is wrong with you? You're so weird right now. And, and so I, I got to the park, uh, at the, uh, Arizona center and, um, we had a, uh, we had a lovely picnic and, um, I gave her a book and at the end of the book was this big kind of lead up. And uh, I proposed. She said yes. I was glad that she didn't say like, oh, that's too small. You know, like it was, she was excited to see the ring. This is a blurry photo from later that day. She took in her office. And, uh, and then this is the Arizona Center, you know, where, uh, where I proposed. And so as I was thinking back to that season, this phrase came to my mind that I was a man on a mission. I knew she was going to say yes. At least I thought so. Um, and uh, I knew I wanted to marry her, and so there was nothing that was going to stop me. I had this hope that if I could just save up enough money, if I could just get a ring, if I could just ask her, she would say yes, and there was nothing that was going to get in my way. And as I think to this series we've been in for the last five weeks called Resurrection People, these men and women that we've been looking at in the book of Acts who were the early followers of Jesus, they had a hope. And they had a mission. And that hope fueled their mission. And it fueled their relentless spirit. They were not going to be deterred. 
you know, and today is the end of this series, um, and uh, it's a little bit bittersweet for me. I would love to talk about resurrection all the way to Christmas, um, but we're not going to have a series that long. And um, if you've been stirred by this series and you want to learn more, then I want to encourage you to grab a copy of this book. It's called Surprised by Hope. The subtitle is Rethinking Heaven, the Resurrection, and the Mission of the Church. Um, when I first read this book eight, eight and a half years ago, it changed everything for me about how I understood resurrection. And Dr. Wright, who's one of the leading New Testament scholars today, he takes this idea that the resurrection of Jesus is the center point of our faith, and he applies it to everything. And um, I'm not, I don't agree with everything that the man has ever written, because he's written a lot of books, um, but this book is fantastic, and I recommend it wholeheartedly. And I wanted to share with you a quote from this book this morning as we begin. In the book, Dr. Wright says, a mission-shaped church must have its mission shaped by hope. That genuine Christian hope rooted in Jesus' resurrection, that hope is the hope of God's renewal of all things. He says, the people who work at and for this mission in the wider world must themselves be living modeling and experiencing the same thing in their own lives. So it's, it's not enough for us just to talk about hope. We have to live it and model it and experience it ourselves. And then he ends with this powerful question. After all, if the gospel isn't transforming you, how do you know that it will transform anyone else? And that's the conviction for us, that if the resurrection hasn't transformed us as people, how on earth do we think it's going to transform someone else? And if the resurrection power isn't at work in your life, then it's no wonder that you're not talking about it with anybody else. And so this morning, from that idea, um, I want us to think about how our hope in the resurrection actually impacts the way we live on a daily basis. This week, as I've been thinking about this series and all the things that I didn't get to say that I wanted to say, I've been thinking about resurrection in my own life. I've been thinking about how I've gone from burnout to renewal in my past. I've thought about how I've going, gone from living, trying to please everybody to just resting in God's pleasure in me. I've, talked, I've, I've reflected on how I've I, I gone from always kind of hedging and not telling the truth because I wanted to be liked to being confident and honest. I've, I've thought about how I've, in my past, run away from my calling to now standing confidently in it. So this morning on your handout, when you walked in, you got one in your bulletin, there's a simple big idea that I want you to fill in some blanks on, and it's this idea, that our hope shapes our mission. That our hope shapes our mission. You say, Scott, what is our hope? Well, our, our hope is that Jesus 2,000 years ago was resurrected from the dead. And that resurrection power is still at work in the world, and it's bringing men and women, boys and girls, back to life. That resurrection is healing marriages, it's, it's transforming communities, it's, it's bringing people access to clean water and food, it's reuniting families, it's giving people's lives senses of purpose. And one day, it's going to renew and resurrect all things. Anything that has been broken, anything that has been wasted, anything that has been lost will one day be transformed. So if that's our hope, What's our mission? Well, our mission is to be people who are working and believing and praying to that end, who are living in light of it. I think the saddest thing is when followers of Jesus are the least hopeful and most afraid people on earth. 
when in fact we should be the least afraid and the most hopeful people because we have this belief in what God is doing. And today we're going to be in the book of Acts, seeing how their hope shaped their mission and what we can learn for ourselves. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, open up to Acts chapter 14, and we'll do a little bit of setup work here. In Acts 14, verse 27, Luke, the writer of Acts, says these words, And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, this is Paul and a guy named Barnabas, they declared all that God had done with them and how he'd opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, for those of you who are new to church, that word Gentiles may seem like a foreign word. Basically, the word Gentiles means non-Jews. So God had opened the door for non-Jews to come to faith. And they remained no little time with the disciples. It says, but some men came down from Judea to the city they were in, which is Damascus, and said, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Which is kind of a big deal. And it says, afterwards, Paul and Barnabas had no small discussion and debate with them. Notice that Luke's tendency is to kind of understate things. They had no small discussion and debate. In other words, it was this giant fight. And Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem and to the apostles and to the elders about this question. This question was, do you have to become Jewish to become a follower of Jesus? Do you have to follow the law in addition to following Jesus? And particularly for the men, it was super important. I won't elaborate because you have kids in the room, but you can fill in the blanks. And so at the heart of this discussion is a question. If our hope shapes our mission, then what? If this hope in the resurrection impacts how we live on a daily basis, then what does that mean? How do we take this idea and put it into practice? What does it mean practically on a day-to-day basis for us to hope in the resurrection and work towards that end? And we learn more in chapter 15. So it says, when Paul and Barnabas came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. So the apostles are the, the 12 men who follow Jesus. The elders are the leaders of the church. And they declared all that God had done with them. This is Paul and Barnabas. But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, which is a religious leadership group within the, Jew, within the Jewish faith, said it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up, who's one of the key followers of Jesus and a leader in the church. And he said to them, brothers, You know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. Now notice this last sentence. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. If if we're going to have a hope and we're going to have a mission And if that hope shapes our mission, then the first thing that means is that we begin to see people differently. If you are a person who believes in the resurrection or you've experienced the resurrection and that's shaping how you live, then the first place that you're going to see that impacted in light of this passage is you're going to begin to see people differently. You're going to see people differently than you used to. What what Peter is saying is that before our whole lives for hundreds of years, we had two categories of people, Jews and non-Jews, Jews Jews and Gentiles. 
And what Peter is saying is now because of Jesus, that category, that barrier has been destroyed and God no longer makes a distinction. It was world-changing for them. This was the fundamental view of their world and now they were called and challenged to see people differently. Let me explain this, what this would look like in an analogy to you. Is there anybody in the room who is colorblind? Raise your hand. Anybody who is colorblind? Okay. So according to stats, one in eight men and one in 200 women are colorblind. Now, colorblind is actually a misnomer. You're not actually blind. What it means is the receptors in your eyes don't see certain colors. And so if you're colorblind, this is how you see flowers. You don't see the distinction in the shades on the top level because of your color vision deficiency, you see that. Which, which means that some of the beauty in the world you're not able to enjoy. But there are pragmatic consequences to color vision deficiency. One of them is when you go to the grocery store. So if you're married to somebody who has color vision deficiency, don't get mad at them when they bring home the wrong fruit because they can't tell the difference. I got in a fight with a buddy once about, I saw a rainbow and he didn't. Danny was there for this fight. And uh, two years later, we learned our friend was colorblind. I said, well, no one needs to see the rainbow. You know, you can't see colors, you know? And so, so when you have color vision deficiency, what it means is that it, you miss out on the distinctions. You miss out on the nuances. Um, but we live in an amazing age. I mean, there's so many things that are possible that were just beyond reason before. And there was a company called Enchroma, and they've invented sunglasses that when worn by people who have color vision deficiency, they can see this when before they could only see this. Now, they're really pricey, and so I didn't buy a pair to show you this morning, but I found a video that went viral last year on Facebook that's about a uh, some sons and daughters and grandchildren that bought their grandfather a pair of these sunglasses and they recorded the first time he put them on. I want to show you this. Watch the screens. Ah, Don't break it. And it came with balloons and all that. Oh my goodness. I can put these on. Yeah, it'll just like it was supposed to be. It'll like correct, how it'll yeah. correct your eyes so that you'll see how it's supposed to see. It's 
see the balloon color? <laughs> Papa, look at the hat. Oh my god. It's not pink, is it? See, that's the image I want you to have in your mind when you think about how the resurrection changes how you view people. That it's not that you see bright fluorescent colors, but that every person you see, you now see through a new lens. For these early followers of Jesus, they ceased seeing the world as Jews and Gentiles, us and them, and they saw one new humanity in Christ. In talking about this, the Apostle Paul later wrote these words, For as many of you were baptized into Christ and have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus." So if you're a follower of Jesus, you can no longer view people the way you did before because you now have a new lens to see people through. So the consequence of that is that sexism, racism, and classism are incompatible with the message of Jesus. You can't say those people and look down on them and claim the grace of Jesus. So there's not patriarchy compatible with the message of Jesus that men are better than women. There's not racism, which is a huge challenge for us. There's not classism where the rich looks down on the poor or the poor spurn the rich. All of these worldviews that are people views are incompatible with the message of Jesus. You can't claim to follow Jesus and look down on someone for the color of their skin, for their gender, or for their economic class. All of those are shattered by the message of Jesus. And yet... This morning is the most segregated time of the week. 55 years later, after Martin Luther King made that statement, that 11 a.m. on Sundays was the most segregated time of the week. It still is. And so we think we understand what it means for the resurrection to cause us to see people differently, but each of us still hold on to these biases, prejudices, and views of people that we had before Jesus. And he wants to resurrect and redeem those too. We can't see people and treat people the way we did before the resurrection if we're going to claim that we're resurrection people. That's what it means to be Easter people all year long is that we see people differently. I could preach a whole sermon on that, but it would be way too uncomfortable in here, so I'll just keep going. In verse 10, Peter says, Now therefore, to all of you who now see Jews and Gentiles differently, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke, which is like a weight, 
on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? It's a great question. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So the first thing, if we have a hope shaped by our mission, is that we see people differently. The second thing is that we fight any compromises on grace. We fight any compromises on grace. If you want to know what separates this new faith that we're watching begin in Acts chapter 15, what separates it from every other faith then and every other faith now is that word grace. That your performance, good or bad, is not the final judgment on your standing before God. Every other faith is rooted in an anti-grace. The, the Buddhist faith, you hope to get good enough or live an enlightened life enough to elevate your life in reincarnation so that you can keep climbing the ladder. Islam, you hope to follow the five pillars to achieve a level of heaven that's high enough for you. Even Mormonism, which has corrupted and changed the Christian faith, has shifted from grace to performance. And so we fight any compromise on grace because we no longer have a need to earn God's favor or be worried about doing enough good things to merit God's approval. Across the history of our faith for 2,000 years, if the faith has been compromised, it has always been from grace to law. It has always been from grace to works. It's even true today. I've talked about this idea of moralistic therapeutic deism with you that, that we uh, are good enough for God and that idea is shattered on the cross with grace. And yet the biggest sin that separates most of us from God is pride. C.S. Lewis said that pride is the sin beneath all sins. And so Peter is saying to his friends, he says, guys, why would we expect them to carry out the law when we can't even do it ourselves? That's a burden that we ourselves can't even carry. Why would we put it on them? And so we have to fight any compromises on grace which say that we have done something to earn God's favor, to earn his love, or to earn a life with him eternally in heaven. Let me say this another way. If the biggest sin that separates us from God is pride, then the opposite is true, that we all stand on the same level at the foot of the cross. There is no better and worse Christians in the eyes of God. Now, there is greater and lesser levels of faithfulness. There is greater and lesser levels of obedience but in the eyes of God, he sees us all in light of what Jesus has done for us. So I'm not better than you, and you're not better than me. So in the same way that I said before, there's no place for grace, for uh, racism, sexism, or classism, there's no place for arrogance or pride in the Christian life. Because we all know, apart from the grace of God, we are without hope. And it's in him that we have hope. And this is such an important idea that starting in two weeks on June the 4th, we're going to begin a new series for the summer 
going verse by verse through the book of Galatians. And the series is called Jesus Plus Nothing. And we're going to talk about the things that the Galatian believers and 21st century American believers tend to add to Jesus. And we're going to continue to go down this road that we will fight any compromises on grace. And at the end of the day, it's Jesus plus nothing that equals everything. So that series starts in two weeks. So the conversation continues in Jerusalem. It says, and all of the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. If our hope shapes our mission, then we also boldly tell our stories. We boldly tell our stories. Paul and Barnabas had seen God do miraculous things on their first missionary journey. They had watched God heal people. They'd watched God deliver them from prison. They'd watched God turn the hearts of people who had been hard-hearted against them. And they were telling their stories with every chance they got. Question for you. How well are you stewarding your resurrection story? In the places in your life where God has done miraculous things, how well are you stewarding and managing that story? Do you ever tell it? When you meet somebody who's going through a difficult season, do you go, hey, this is, this is what God has done for me? When you encounter somebody who has been where you've been, do you speak empathetically to them and say, let me tell you how God met me where you are and what he did in my life? We think about stewardship in terms of money, and time, and gifts, but we each have a story of how God has been faithful to us, and we're called to be stewards of that story. You know, if if God is going to work in our church, and I believe he is and is going to, then the growth is not going to come from me adding four extra hours to my day every day and working more hours here. It's going to come through us, through all of us, because the truth is you're the secret sauce to our church. Some of you know this idea of a secret sauce, you know, this idea of there's this recipe that you don't tell other people and it's kind of the insider secret. You know, you're the secret sauce of this church because I hear from people that are sitting next to you and you turn around for the service and you shake somebody's hand and invite them to lunch or they show up at your house for a small group and you welcome them in, or you serve alongside them in the nursery or in our kids' ministry or greeting outside, and they say, hey, I I came to this church, and people were nice, but when I joined a group, those people became my family, and they walked with me through the darkest time of my life. Or or they invited me to come serve next to them, and now I have a reason to come every Sunday morning. Something's not going to get done if I don't show up. Or, hey, I met this person, and they really reached out to me. Like, they, they texted me during the week. They asked me out for coffee. Because here's the thing. I can't be best friends with 500 people. And even if I could invite somebody else next week, and I can't be their best friend too. If we're going to grow and reach the quad cities where tens of thousands of people are disconnected from church and not following Christ, it's going to have to come through all of us. God's going to have to use all of us. Because there's people that are close to you that aren't close to me. There's people that are far from God, but they're your friend. 
And God wants to use you in their life as you steward your story to help them take a step closer to Jesus. You're the secret sauce. And God's calling all of us to boldly share our stories. Here's the final way this whole uh, event wraps up. And just so you know, this, this next section is the reason why you're here if you're not Jewish. If you're a follower of Jesus and not Jewish, this is the reason why 2,000 years later you get to be a part of this, this chapter. Beginning of verse 13, this is what it, re- what, it, what it reads. It says, after they'd finished speaking, Barnabas and Paul, James, who's the brother of Jesus, who, by the way, if your brother can believe you're the son of God, you're really the son of God, you know? Because <laughs> we all have brothers. And he says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. So he's going to quote the prophets here. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, the prophet said, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment, this is James speaking, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. The fourth thing that if our hope shapes our mission that we should do is that we pursue holiness together. If our hope shapes our mission, if we believe that the resurrection of Jesus wasn't an event that happened a long time ago, but a reality that's still at work today and it impacts how we live on a daily basis, what it means is that we pursue holiness together. Now this list that they made in verse 20 These issues were the moral issues in their world. They were the moral issues that people disagreed over. The first one was idolatry, worshiping false gods, worshiping idols. Second, sexual immorality. What what kind of sexual acts honor God and in what context? And then issues related to blood. Because they ate meat and meat sacrifices were so pervasive. Is a follower of Jesus, is a worshiper of God allowed to eat meat that has been Uh, that has blood in it, or that comes from an animal that was strangled in its death. These were the moral issues of the world. And so the believers came together and said, we have to find a way to honor God and respect one another. They were trying to figure out how to do church because church has always been a diverse community where people disagreed about things. People say, man, people at church don't, don't know how to get along. They just disagree about stuff. I go, yeah, we're human. We can't agree on anything, but that's been our history for 2,000 years. But the challenge has been, how do we come together and honor and respect one another's even in the midst of our diverse beliefs? And one of the places that they said, we're going to come together and honor one another was in these areas of holiness. And so they said, abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled and from blood. And this area of holiness, if we're honest, is an area that we tend to kind of do the Heisman with, you know, like, you know, we kind of push it away. It was a pretty bad Heisman for those of you who know that one. 
But we tend to push away holiness. I'm not going to let anybody tell me how to live my life. But the truth is, even in a world where holiness is out and authenticity is in, we need people who call us to be our best selves. If no one can tell you anything about how you're living your life, you're in a dangerous position. If no one can hold you accountable, if no one can tell you the truth, then you'll never reach the place that God has called you or created you to live. If no one can tell you anything. Because you're going to be way off course and not know it. See, I think some of us, we resist this idea of holiness because we resist people who are self-righteous. We all have friends like that, you know. They're God's gift to creation and they know it. And here's the thing. The gospel isn't opposed to righteousness. The gospel is opposed to self-righteousness. And so God is calling us to follow him in the path of righteousness so that we are looking more and more like Jesus every single day. The gospel is opposed, though, to self-righteousness, which says that I have made myself this way. That I have worked and slaved to make myself holier than everybody else. And here's where I want to bring back the question that Dr. Wright asked in the beginning, where he said, if the resurrection isn't transforming us, how will we know that it will transform anyone else? Where's the last place that you remember changing in your life? Where you look back and I go, man, this is who I was and this is who I am. If it takes you a day or two to figure out a place like that, that should stop you. And ask yourself, am I really still open to God changing me and working in my life? Have I become self-righteous? Have I become proud? Have I become arrogant? Because if it's not transforming you, I can promise you something. You're not talking to anybody about your faith. Because if it's not working for you, why would you share it? I mean, if you go somewhere and have dinner and get food poisoning, you don't post a positive review on Yelp and Facebook and bring a friend next week. And so if the gospel's not changing you anymore, why on earth would you share it? That's the challenge for a lot of us, is that we're, we've stopped being transformed by it. And the evidence is in the lack of sharing in our lives. So here's the next steps, because I'm about over my time. Here's the first one. I want to challenge you this week, and, and as this series concludes, I want to challenge you to own and tell your resurrection story. I want to challenge you to own and tell your resurrection story. And if that's a hard thing for you to comprehend, I want you to think about it in terms of these two questions. And the first one is this, where have I experienced resurrection myself? Where has God brought something in my life from death to life? Where has some been, there have been something that was just ashes and God brought life out of that? What's a situation that was dark and God brought light there? What's a part of me that this is who I used to be and this is now who I am? Where have I experienced resurrection? And then second, because I think we forget this part, where have I witnessed resurrection in others? Where have you witnessed resurrection in others? Part of Danny's resurrection story, my wife, is the resurrection story that God has done in me as we have done life together. Because I'm not the same person she met 11 years ago. And so part of her resurrection story is my resurrection story. 
Second thing I'm going to challenge you to do is start developing a resurrection worldview. In the same way you saw that man weep as he put those lenses on for the first time, I want to challenge you to begin up developing a resurrection worldview. And one way you could do this is by reading the book Surprised by Hope. It's a bit of a longer book, but it will help you think systemically through all the areas of your life in light of the resurrection. A simpler way for you to do it, if you like a shortcut, is this question. What would resurrection mean here? In your job, asking the question, what would resurrection mean in this company? Or what would resurrection mean in this family? What would it mean in this neighborhood? What would it mean in this school? And then finally, three, I want to challenge you to identify and empower your resurrection people. Who are the people who call you to be the person God created you to be? This is my friend, Jason. And I met Jason four years ago when I was on a journey from burnout to renewal. And Jason called something out of me. As my supervisor, he gave me larger opportunities to lead. He let me preach when he was gone. And if I can trace God's work that brought me to Cornerstone down to one person, it's this guy. If he hadn't stepped away and created space for me to lead then your search team would have never found me. And he called out resurrection in me and saw things in me that I didn't see in myself. If you're going to be the person God created you to be, you're not going to become that on your own. And as we become resurrection people, God brings resurrection power in our world. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for the ways that you have been at work in our lives over the last five weeks in this series. We thank you for the ways you've challenged us and spoken to us. And we pray that resurrection wouldn't just stay back in April on the 16th, but it would be a powerful part of our lives every single day. We pray that you would transform the way that we see people. We pray that you would transform the way that we see your work in our past. And we pray that you would finish the work that you started in us. God, if we're honest, there are places in our lives that we don't want to let you work in. There's things that we're holding on to from before we met you. There are places that you haven't yet brought your resurrection, at least in ways we can see. And so we pray that we would surrender our lives to you, everything. And continue to allow you to take more and more of who we've been and transform it to be more and more of who you've created us to be. Who you long for us to be. God, that's uncomfortable, that's scary. But we know that you bring life out of death, light out of darkness, and beauty out of ashes. Because that's what you're one day going to do for all creation. And so we pray that you would start that work in us today. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.